Welcome to the Young Associates Perspective, a podcast about all things related to business, life, and the community. My name is Joshua Zapresent, and I'm the host of this podcast series. Today, I'm excited to share with you a conversation with Sylvia D'Souza, a partner at TDS Law Firm in Winnipeg. Called to the Manitoba Bar in 1994, Sylvia has spoken on many occasions to professional organizations and industry groups on intellectual property and technology law matters. She has also taught solicitor transaction matters, licensing, and international law as a sessional lecturer at the University of Manitoba, Faculty of Law, and the Asper School of Business. Sylvia served as past chair of the National Intellectual Property Law Section of the Canadian Bar Association and is a former chair and current member of the Technology and Intellectual Property Law Section of the Manitoba Bar Association. She has volunteered her time with numerous community organizations including the Legal Help Centre, the Health Sciences Foundation, the Manitoba Chambers of Commerce, Branch Council of the Manitoba Bar Association, and the American Bar Association IP section. Sylvia also sits on the Board of Directors for the Associates and is the Chair of the Recruitment Committee. Sylvia was recognized nationally as a Woman of Influence by the Woman of Influence Inc. and under the Best Lawyers in Canada in 2016-17 and 2020-21 for technology law. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation and learning more from Sylvia. Sylvia, welcome to the Young Associates Perspective. It's so awesome to have you. Excited to sit down and have this conversation with you uh, as a guest on the episode here. Share your thoughts about the YA, the Associates, and of course, intellectual property and technology law. So, hey, welcome. Thank you very much, Josh. I've been looking forward to this. I think we're going to have a great time. Awesome. I can't wait. Uh, let's start with talking about the Y and the Associates. You have been a Y and Associate for a few years, um, joining the YA back when you were a young professional. What value did the YA bring to your professional journey, and do you recall why you initially joined the YA? I do, so I've been practicing now for, uh, I think, about 28 years, and my first year as an articling student or as a first-year lawyer was one of those years. Uh, many moons ago, I decided to join the Young Associates. I can't remember who told me about the Young Associates, but I knew that I wanted to network and I wanted to meet young professionals. And I also knew that the Young Associates was a group to be a part of. Um, And I joined and I've never stopped um, to the point where I was also on the board for the Young Associates for about 10 years Mm -hmm. um, and was involved in some of the governance issues and, um, and planning events, for example. Uh, if they needed input from the board, we we helped plan with that input. And I think in the end, what I got from the Young Associates was I met some really great people. And those great people are now good friends of mine. Um, and I think for me, that's a lot of value. Um, Manitoba is a small community. Um, even though it's a big province, it still feels small. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually really like that feeling because I like to be able to go somewhere and bump into someone that I know, and um, having those good friends that I've met from the Young Associates have been really invaluable to me. That's awesome. Now, you're the chair of the recruitment committee for the Associates. What's the biggest difference between a Young Associate and the Associates? I think, uh, for me, it's the type of events. Both groups provide networking, and if you want to network, you'll be given that opportunity with both groups. But the events are different. Yeah, the Young Associates may be a lot more social. Um, but, I mean, the good thing is I think there's, an, uh, there's a, uh, an ability for Young Associate members to partake 
and participate in associate events and vice versa. Um, and the events at the associates, um, as a as a as someone who's been now in her career for 28 years, um, I'm always looking for good events that are short, to the point on critical issues that impact myself and my clients. So the economy would be a critical issue, which the associates always have at least one event every year on our Canadian economy, how it interplays with the international economy. Um, And I get a lot of good information that I could put in use in my practice. Awesome. I think that piece of professional development too, especially for the YA, is so critical and important, and uh, uh, which is great about it for sure for two. You made a transition from the YA to the associates, and now we have a dual membership to assist with that transition. How do you know when it's time as a YA to make that shift and the transition to the associates? I mean, I, 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 for me, I just went with my gut. Um, and as the events were rolling out uh, for, uh, during the years, if you find yourself really finding yourself interested in, let's say, the associate events, and you're a young associate, um, at that point, you may say, you know, maybe I'm ready to go and do the dual track, which I did, um, and give it a shot. Um, and the dual track allows you to go in at an affordable price uh, and try out some of those, uh, some of the associate events um, and, and get a feel for them, where then you can make the full transition. Perfect. What do you think today is the biggest value for people to join the YA and the associates? I think the biggest value is um, the networking and the professional development and the ability to do both at the same time, <laughs> which is fabulous. And have fun. <laughs> and have fun <laughs> as you're learning. Um, I think that's, that's probably, uh, at least for me, the biggest value. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I get a lot of enjoyment uh, doing that. That's awesome. It really is such a great organization to be part of and, and so much value for the members. Uh, we're going to switch gears now, Sylvia. You've been recognized nationally as a woman of influence by the Women of Influence, Inc. and under the Best Lawyers in Canada in 2016, 17, and 2020, 21 uh, for technology law. That's pretty cool. That's pretty uh, neat, yeah. <laughs> congratulations on these incredible awards. I can't think of anyone better to have this IP and, and technology law conversation with. Uh, I'm excited. But how does it feel to be recognized nationally for outstanding achievement in your profession? It's wonderful because it comes from your peers. Um, And I work really hard um, to make sure I'm always up to date on what the latest laws are. And also, I work really hard to make sure my my clients are happy um, and that they're getting good service. And so to be able to be recognized um, for doing a good job is lovely. That's awesome. Uh, let's dive into our conversation about IP and, and technology law. I think it's it's fair to say it's such an incredible, ever-evolving and disruptive space that's become so important for businesses and uh, will be for the future. Uh, big topic, but we'll cover a few key pieces today. Let's start with just what intellectual property is, kind of what do IP rights mean and, and what type of intellectual property exists. Yeah. So intellectual property are intangible assets that are creative. And that's sort of the simple way um, that I, um, I describe it to clients. And there's different types of intellectual property. Um, and Josh, you've heard me say this probably. Um, there's trademarks, patents, copyright, domain names, industrial designs, trade secrets. I even put in business names, corporate names, uh, social media handles, hashtags, 
All of those um, items are types of IP, and every business has some of that. So that's for sure. Um, you have it as a business. And so the question then becomes, um, is, is that IP that you have in your business valuable? And, and then and making an analysis on that because um, IP protection could become very expensive. And the other point that I make with my clients is that IP is national in scope. And so what that means is um, there's no such thing as an international patent or international trademark. You really have to figure out which countries are going to generate enough revenue for your business to be able to spend money in that particular country to protect your IP. You don't want to waste your money by going into a country where you're not generating revenue because, again, IP protection could become very expensive if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I work with my clients on is identifying what their IP is, what their business goals are, um, and then help them strategize as to where they're going to protect and what they're going to protect. Because now you know there's different I- types of IP. Every business has at least one or two um, and then figure out, okay, where am I going to protect it? Makes sense. And is there a time limit on intellectual property and protecting it? Certain types of IP do have uh, time limits. So, for example, trademarks and copyright, um, uh, the time limits there, um, at least in Canada, there's no time limits. You just file when you, you want, when you're ready to file. My advice is to get an application in as soon as you can because of trademark trolls. Uh, but... Other types of IP, like patents and industrial design, um, you've got to be very careful that you're not disclosing uh, what your invention is or what your industrial design is, um, unless you have confidentiality obligations tied to that disclosure. But if you don't, then um, in most countries of the world, you may have lost the ability to get protection. But in Canada and the United States, we have a one-year grace period from the date of disclosure. So those two types of IP, patents and industrial designs, very, very critical due dates on that. So you got to be very careful. And the other one that I like to mention is domain names. And I was um, listening uh, to a webinar recently. And the example that was provided during that webinar was that um, a big um, uh, national company did a new brand, rebranded. And, and they, they spent a lot of money on this branding. And they, they went out to the public but guess what they forgot? The domain. The domain name registration. And you don't, and you don't need to have a business going to get a, brand, a domain name. Just file it, and it's cheap. And oh. so when they realized, ooh, oh, I think we forgot to get the domain name, and they went to check to get it, guess what? Someone else were, No, someone oh. was already ahead of them. Oh, no. So, again, what did they do? Well, I, that I don't <laughs> know what they did, because that, that wasn't shared during that webinar. But... Um, but but then I mean when, I mean ultimately what happens is um, that person who got it if they're if they're getting it not for the right purposes, um, i.e. they're squatting on it, um, they may have asked for a lump sum of money for a transfer, and so maybe that's what that company ended up having to do is to really buy it from that squatter. Wow. So again, no due dates, but you really want to be proactive, and that would also apply to social media. Uh, your hashtags, your your handles, make sure you get those um, registered before you go out in the public so no one goes ahead and gets those from you. Makes sense, makes sense. 
why is intellectual property important for a business? You kind of touched on it, um, but what considerations should businesses have when planning an intellectual property strategy for a new market, just making sure that all of those handles, domain names, are secured before even going to the public? Yeah. I mean, um, the best time to protect it is as soon as you're starting your business. When I say that, I'm not saying to start filing um, applications right away. I'm saying be proactive, see a lawyer, talk about what your business is, talk about your brand, talk about any inventions, any ideas, any concepts, um, talk about it. And then the lawyer, what I do with my clients is, I'll say, okay, here's the idea that I think you have. So I help them identify. And then I say to the client, okay, I actually tell them, do a table. So your first column is, what IP do you have in your business? So I, and I help them identify that IP. And now we know what, what that means, because I've given you examples. And then I say to the client, okay, then do the second column. Is it valuable? And that, the client and I could work together, but that's really a business decision. So is that this, you know, you have five trademarks. Um, which one is your most valuable one? And then you fill out that second column. Yes, very valuable, not valuable at all. Okay, so what, what inventions do you have? Um, and how valuable are they? Do they give you a competitive edge over your competitor? Yes, no. Um, and then, you know, do you have any copyrightable works? Like, how critical are they to your business? Are manuals critical to your business? What would happen if someone steals and copies uh, most of your manual? As a, if that's your competitor, will that, will that disrupt? What about your videos that you have on your website? So that kind of analysis. And then that second column is, is it valuable or not? Um, and that will, and then so... Um, that from and then your third column is do you want to protect it, if if valuable, and then your fourth column is where do you want to protect it, mm. um, and so that and so that's and then and then for the business side because I work with clients okay we know it's expensive and I give them quotes and and uh, as to what's going to cost to be able to protect it. Um, and then depending on what their cash flow is and how much money they want to spend in a particular year, and if there's no due dates, they, they have time, um, but there's risks, um, and we talk about those. And then um, we figure out, okay, maybe not, maybe not immediate protection today or tomorrow, but, so let's talk about it or, or, or do, a, do a task, and you look at it in six months and ask yourself, do I want to go into Brazil and protect this trademark now or do I want to hold and then if you want to hold, because maybe you haven't generated enough revenue, but you want it's, it's a market that you're, you're keen on, then you maybe move that task to a year, six months after, and ask, and ask yourself again. Um, and so we, I work with clients to sort of figure out what's immediate protection and what they could hold. And then they should be doing an analysis every six to, every six to 12 months on whether they want to go and protect. You made a comment earlier that almost every business has some type of IP. Do you think, in your experience, that a lot of companies that aren't inventing brand new pieces of software or technology, they overlook IP that they could potentially have? And yeah, they certainly do. Them? Yeah, very much so. And because, I mean, I think some people think they don't have IP uh, in their business, but everyone does. Hmm. The question is, is it valuable? That's great. Yeah. So how do you know if you do determine you have a piece of something that you'd like to protect. How do you know if you're ready to talk to a lawyer? Uh, and at what stage should they reach out right away? Yeah, I would reach out right away, even if to have like an hour meeting with someone like me. And we would we would just we just hammer it all out. And, and I do this with clients and startups. Um, and they take a bunch of notes. And then they go away. And, and, and I, we give them time. I give them timelines. And they go away. And then, um, you know, six months later, I might get an email then from some of these um, potential clients. 
um, saying, hey, um, you know, further to our meeting six months ago, I'm now ready. Mm-hmm. So I'd like, to, I'd like to protect this trademark. Or, you know, further to, um, you know, seven months ago, we talked about my invention. I've kept it secret, Sylvia, as you've told me. I'm now ready. I've done more research. I'm now ready to get an application in. So I, I, I think you need to be proactive, get the lay of the land, and then diarize. And then you come to me when you're ready. But at least you know what the lay of the land is, and you know what you have to come to me on, and what you have to be concerned about. Is there anything additional that you would recommend people do before reaching out to you, searching certain databases yep. or anything? Yeah. So um, for on the trademark side, I say to clients... Um, there, we, you should do a search, and I usually give this as homework to my clients. I call it a knockout search. And so um, you would go on to two sources, um, do a Google search on your trademark. Um, you won't be able to do a design search, but you could certainly do a word search. See what pops up. And the keywords that you would put in it would be your trademark and uh, your key good or your key service. And see what pops up to see if there's someone who's using this, a very, the same or a similar trademark to sell the same or similar goods and services as you. Because if you find someone, then there may be a problem. But if you find nothing, then at least you know that we, when we have a discussion, you could tell me that, and then we could we could talk more about um, more full, what I call medium or full searches. And then, um, and the other source on a trademark, okay, so it's Google number one, and then the number two is um, Canada and the United States have public trademark databases Again, you can't do design searches, but you can certainly do wordmark searches. And I encourage clients to go onto those sites if they're interested in the United States or in Canada uh, to, to type in the wordmark and to see what comes up. Is there someone else in Canada that's filed an application or registered a trademark that's similar or the same? And then you can make it, you could, they could sort of figure out if they have a problem or not. And we, could, and we could certainly have a discussion on that. And on the patent side, um, we have, um, I encourage clients to also search with using keywords of, to that describe their invention. Um, and the three sources that I encourage them to search on is the Google Patent Database, which is very good, uh, the Canadian Patent Database, which is public, and the U.S. Patent Database, which is also public. Um, and there's two databases in the U.S., so don't, don't get um, confused. There are two, not one. Canada only has the one that has everything in it. But in the U.S., they have two databases. And then just search and see what happens. Because if you find um, a, a patent application or a patent that has been issued on your invention, um, you will not be able to get a patent on your invention because we call that prior art. And that's one of the criterias. One of the criterias for the test that's used in Canada, United States, is it has to be brand new. No one in the world has done it. So if you find prior art, then you know you've already failed that criteria of that test. What if it's not exact but similar? If it's not exact but similar, then the other part of the test is the non-obvious. So um, you have to ask yourself, if someone in the industry looked at that patent and looked at your invention, would it have been, would it have been obvious to that person to come up with your invention? And if the answer is yes, then you won't be able to get a patent. Now, that's very subjective. Yeah. So that, so there's a lot of room for argument in there, but that is part part of the test is the non-obvious criteria. Interesting. Yeah, and then, and then third, the test has three parts in Canada. So it's brand new. Uh, second is non-obvious, um, and third is useful. And most inventions are useful. Right. Um, and are those searches free, or do you have to pay for those searches? All of that's free. 
Awesome. Yeah. You did mention when you are safer, you go through the free searches, you speak to you. Um, it can then become costly once you're ready to file. What uh, what should startups budget for legal costs as it relates to IP? Well, and it depends on the type of IP that they want to protect. I mean, with uh, patents, there's different types of patent applications. So, I mean, the, the way I describe it to clients, really to sort of simplify, is I call it the provisional patent application, and then the second type is the full patent application. And so, the provisional, you may be looking at three to four thousand. Um, uh, and there's pros and cons to doing a provisional. Um, and then there's the full patent application. And most of my clients file both in Canada and the United States. And so if you're doing both those jurisdictions, then you're looking at about ten to 15000 okay. to get a full patent. So it's expensive. That is. And how long does it roughly take to file those? Um, the provisional, because, um, it, it's very quick. I mean, if someone calls me today, I could probably get a provisional in within three to four days. Um, and then with the uh, full patent application, you, you, want, you need a few weeks because you really want to get that one right. Yeah, absolutely. So if someone really needs to protect their IP, a startup, they need to spend the ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. Are there grants or other subsidies that you're aware of that can help entrepreneurs to pay for some of those legal costs yeah. for their IP? There are, um, and it always changes. So like over my 28 years of, of doing um, law, um, I've seen a few programs, not many, but there's been a few. They come up, but then they get they get um, abandoned or, or they're withdrawn by government. So they're all government based. You have the, I would keep checking every year because new ones come up or old ones go away. But currently, um, we have the Can Export um, Grant Program, which is a federal grant program. And I would encourage all businesses who are exporting or want to export to look at it. You you are able to tap into money to pay for IP protection. So how can you, if you have IP and you've gone through the process of protecting it, how can you monetize that intellectual property? So basically, there's two ways of handling IP. That's how I describe it to my clients. Um, the first way is you're the owner, and the second way is you're a user. So as an owner, you own the IP, and so you've decided, okay, I own it. I'm really going gonna, gonna to manufacture the invention that I've described in my patent. And I'm going to set up a business. I'm going to set up a brand. I'm going to. I'm going to set. I'm going to get salespeople. I'm going to go out and I'm going to sell this. I'm going to make it and sell it. I'm doing it myself. That's the first way, and you monetize it by selling your product or or a service um, if you're software based, uh, for example. And then the other way is you're a user, and so um, um, or you're the owner. Uh, so you're a user where you're um, licensing. Um, third-party IP. Now you got to pay a royalty, but you're able then um, to use that third party's IP and make money on it. And then um, the other um, way under um, under the license or, or under the license is um, you you own it, but you're not interested in manufacturing, and so you license your IP to a third party. Mm. So outbound and. That third party will pay you royalties to use your IP. And there's, and we call that a license relationship, and there's different types of licenses. Um, and so depending on the type that you choose, um, ultimately you get royalties. And is there any specific timelines on how long those could last, or that's all subject to the agreement? And that's the subject to the agreement. 
Interesting. Yeah. How common do you see businesses and entrepreneurs choose to license their product to a third party rather than actually start and build a business? I'm thinking of there's so many individuals in a science lab or doing research products projects that come up with these amazing ideas, but then they just shelf it or they don't want to actually build it into a business. Is that pretty common from what you see? That does happen, um, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on sort of the type of good or service. And so on the software side, lots of licensing. Because that's, that's what, that's what you, like, you, yeah. it's, it's, and it's software as a service now. Like, you don't even have to have a tangible CD or, or, or a USB. Like, it's all online. Um, so that's a service, and that's all licensed, basically. Where, you know, for example, if I'm the developer and I own the code that I create and I've created a software as a service platform, um, I'm going to license it to you, Josh, to be able to go onto the platform and use it for whatever the purpose is. Mm-hmm. And you're going to pay me sometimes, usually a subscription fee per month to be able to get access to my platform. And so that is sort of the licensing way of monetizing. Um, and if you have a tangible good, um, like a microphone, for example, or a water bottle, um, then um, and you have this great idea um, and, and there's special things that this microphone does that you get a patent on. Um, you either manufacture the microphone with the special um, items within it uh, or you're going to license it to a third party to do that for you uh, and get royalties back. But that doesn't always happen because people just don't have the money to set up whatever they need. Like, um, if they think, oh, I need a manufacturing plant, that costs a lot of money. Um, having said that, um, you know, there's, there's, you could outsource the manufacturing to a third party, right? Um, and then you get into a manufacturing agreement. And so you don't have to have your own plant. So there's ways of doing it. Um, it's, it's working with people who know and have contacts, um, within that particular industry and who to approach to either manufacture, for example, or to do a prototype, for example, because sometimes I get calls, I want to do a prototype, Sylvia, but I don't know anyone, to, who do I, where do I do it? And knowing where to send them. Right. So I go through this process with you to protect a piece of intellectual property that I have. Time goes by, I think that maybe someone's infringed or using my intellectual property that I've protected. What do I do as an entrepreneur or as a business owner? Contact you, obviously, right away, or I'm assuming, or, or what's that process like, if, if you believe that's the case? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the type of infringement. And I could say that during the pandemic, one of the areas that got really busy for me was uh, sending out cease and desist letters. So a lot of my clients were reaching out to me because they were seeing infringement or they were seeing counterfeit products. Um, like I got a lot of that work during the pandemic. And I think it's because everybody was online and um, and people were doing things that they shouldn't be doing, selling other people's products and, and, um, and sell, selling co- counterfeits. And so clients were calling me to stop. And the other type of, uh, that's one type of infringement. The other type of infringement is where someone is using a tra- your trademark to sell a similar good or service or the same good or service. So um, what do you do? It depends on how comfortable you are and depends on the type of infringement. On the counterfeits, um, you should call me. But if it's a trademark infringement, for example, and you're comfortable enough uh, to send an email to whoever you see is infringing, because they may actually not know, not know that they're doing it, right? right? And you may want to send maybe a, a lovely uh, email just saying, hey, um, just to let you know that I'm here, 
Um, and um, I, um, I see that you're also doing, um, you're using this, uh, a very similar trademark, the same trademark for your goods and services. You should stop. Now, if you're comfortable doing that, but the reason why you may want to see a lawyer before you even touch base with the infringer is in that trademark example that I've given you, you better be sure before you send that email, asking them in a nice way to stop, that you are the prior user of that trademark in the jurisdiction that you're in. Because if you're not the prior user and you send out that email, then you may be getting a lawsuit oh. against you because now you're the one that's <laughs> infringing. So so it's good to see a lawyer um, um, just to make sure it's done properly. And sometimes on these trademark infringement ones, for example, um, I'll have the discussion with the client. I'll do, I have what I call a prior use confusion analysis chart that I've created because I've done so much of this kind of work. And um, I populate it and it's to make sure that we're the prior users. And then I'll go back to the client and say, hey, good news, you are the prior user. And now do you want to send the email or do you want it coming from a lawyer's office? And then, and then we make that, we have a discussion on that and we, we, we come to a decision and, um, and we proceed from there. Um, on the counterfeit um, uh, example, um, that, I mean, you're wasting your time if you know they're counterfeiters, they're just ignoring you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll, you'll get nowhere. And so then you come to see me and there's, there's strategies and techniques that we could use to shut them down. Um, and it is, um, um, I mean, we shut them down and they will open up again. Um, but at least you're getting some of the websites down. And, um, and we, one of the things that um, I use is takedown notices. Um, but I sometimes will work with my clients, and my clients will sometimes do the takedown take notices. We have a discussion first to make sure they don't get sued um, by, uh, by putting in a takedown notice. Um, and then if they're comfortable doing it, sometimes I'll, my clients could go ahead and do it. Um, or I'll do the first, um, the first takedown notice. Um, and then they could sort of use that, that first um, draft or that whatever the final draft that I come up with, and they could use that to use it on the other platforms if, if there's a lot of social, social media platforms that they have to take down on. So there's, there's strategies, but on that, you, you'll probably want to call a lawyer because they're not, you're not going to get anywhere with counterfeiters. No. If I have something protected in Canada or the U.S., but I see the infringement in a different country that it's not legally protected in, is there anything that the owner of that IP can do? It depends if you have rights. That's why it's national scope. So it depends on whether you have rights in that particular country. And so we do that analysis as well. Yeah. In today's ever-evolving digital age, what's important to know about technology law? Um, and, And what's really, how important is technology law for businesses? So technology law is tied to IP law, and it's also tied to data. And um, we talk about, um, I, I talk about sort of the, the, the revolution of data. And I think businesses, uh, for the most part, don't put their minds towards data, and I think they should, because that's another asset that you could try to monetize. You got to be careful because personal information and privacy are big issues, um, and you have to be cognizant of the laws that are associated with those two areas. Um, but if you do it right, you are able to monetize data. But you've got to give yourself or get those rights. And I think, from my experience, when I'm working with clients in agreements, no one talks about data. No one talks about ownership of data. No one talks about licensing of data. And data and technology law go hand in hand because technology law really deals a lot with software 
and what what and, and many types of software and software platforms get data mm-hmm. or they have data and so the question is who owns that data and if you don't own it and you're not getting the right to own it do you want to be a user a licensee of that data and all of that needs to go into an agreement so there's no problems later on if you decide that you want to monetize it so when we're scrolling through websites and different sites and usually at the bottom we see that privacy policy tab uh, why do websites need that privacy policy and, and what's most important when companies are building that data strategy and learning how to store and protect the data that they are collecting? Yeah. So the privacy policy in Canada, um, there's no law requiring you to have a privacy policy, but other countries, other industrialized countries, um, some of them do have that law, so you got to be very cognizant. Um, where are you doing business and making sure that you're complying with those laws? Um, I encourage clients to put privacy policies on their website because privacy and personal information and the protection of personal information is very important to consumers and users of websites and and software platforms. It it just is. So what do you do when you know that? You try to make people feel comfortable that are using your software that are going onto your website. And how do you do that? By having a privacy policy. It just shows that you care. Um, and that, um, and in, in, and in, and at least in the privacy policies that I draft, there's a contact person. So you're also showing um, users and um, uh, of your website and your platforms. Hey, if you have a problem, here's who you're going to call. Like we're here for you. So, so I think it, it just gives the public the perception that you do care, and you do care More if you're putting a privacy policy. I think absolutely. So occasionally in the news or from others, we hear about different fraud or theft of data online. How can people and businesses protect themselves against technology or computer-related crimes of that nature? I mean, and so this is a a new cutting-edge area. I mean, it's been around uh, for sure for at least five years, but cybersecurity. Um, And and I think most of us have now been hearing about that word a lot because of the the hacking that happens um, uh, with respect to... um, Systems in, 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 in different businesses. And if you think you're too small to be hacked, no one's too small to be hacked. Um, ransomware, no one needs to be small. You don't have to be big to get hit with ransom, ransomware. So in order to protect yourselves, um, training of uh, the people within your business, right? Because I think the weakest link and, and why people, I think, get hacked is human error. And so how do you prevent human error, or at least reduce the risk of human error um, as it relates to cyber uh, security attacks, is making sure your people uh, within your organization are trained. Um, and I know businesses will test their employees uh, by sending sort of testing emails. You don't know it's a test email that's coming in your inbox. You think it's a real email, but really it's a test email that's being sent. And that's all part of training. Smart. Um, so, sort of let it, so, and so if you open it, I mean, you should not have opened it. Then you get a little message saying, you should not have opened that. This was a test, but you, should, you, know, you could have caused a problem within the business, right? So I think that's, I mean, so training becomes important. Um, and then just having the right um, uh, IT systems in place. Um, just, um, I mean, I know our firm is a big issue for us, and we have really strong IT systems uh, because of what we do. Uh, and so that's important. 
So what responsibilities do companies have when they are collecting data and analytics? Uh, is it certain places where they can store it or times they can access it or uh, limits to how long they can have it stored for? Yeah, all of that is all, all of it's important. Everything you've said is key. Um, and we have, um, we have the PIPEDA legislation in Canada. That's our privacy legislation. There's two or three provinces that also have their own privacy legislation, but that's what they talk about. Uh, what data are you storing? Um, why are you storing it? Uh, do you have authorization from the user to store it? Um, do you still need to store it? Like, what's, what's your destruction plan for the different types of data that you're collecting? Because you can't be sitting on data forever, especially if it's personal information. Um, and so um, there are laws on that that you need to be cognizant of. Sylvia, you've served as past chair of the National Intellectual Property Law Section of the Canadian Bar Association and are a former chair and current member of the Technology and Intellectual Property Law Section of the Manitoba Bar Association. Through your, all of the years of your experience, how have you seen the legal industry and the profession change over time, if anything, to adapt to new technology that continues to evolve? Um, we are evolving. Law is usually slower than most <laughs> Industries and I laugh, and I'm 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 actually quite a, a good example of that. So one of the things that we've been trying to do, um, but my colleagues all laugh, uh, is go paperless, right? And use our use the digital technologies yeah. that we have. Um, but lawyers, um, m- well, me, um, I love <laughs> I love paper. Uh, I still get my newspapers dropped off at my mailbox. I love reading my paper newspapers. Yes, I have a digital account for my favorite newspapers, but I still love having my paper. I still love paper books. But one of the changes that you do see within the legal profession um, is um, using technology to go paperless. Uh, One of the other changes is online filing. I mean, in the old days, I would mail my trademark applications. Now, I've been doing online filing forever now. But the ability to be having that ability and, and using that ability to do online filings. Um, research. Um, in the old days, we had a, a library with books. Um, we really don't have a library with books uh, anymore. All of our research basically is done digitally. Um, we have access to the books on, on a digital platform. Um, and so those are the things that have been going on for a number of years. But the, the, the big thing that's coming, and, and, and some firms um, are using it, um, I don't think we are at this point, um, is AI. Mm-hmm. And using AI within our legal practice. So how do you, let's talk a little more about that. How do you see AI most benefiting uh, law firms in particular? So, um, I mean, uh, on, from, for me, is um, when, for example, there's a merger and acquisition where there's a business that's being sold. And so... Uh, one of the big components of a merger and acquisition deal is the due diligence, um, making sure that if, if I'm representing the purchaser, making sure that my purchaser client is buying what he or she thinks they're buying. And so we, we do that by, we, fi- we, fi- we figure that out by doing due diligence. Well, if you're doing a massive deal, um, there's a lot of paper or a lot of uh, agreements to, to review, especially on the IP side. So, you know, you look at employment agreements, independent contractor agreements, joint development agreements, um, license agreements, you know, g- agreements with g- government, collaboration agreements, and you're reviewing them for certain for certain pitfalls because you want to make sure that the company that, that you're buying owns all the IP, for example. There could be hundreds of agreements. So AI, and, and right now, I mean, the old way of doing it, I mean, the, the old way of doing it and the current way of doing it is um, all of those agreements get uploaded into a, a virtual um, room 
Mm-hmm. Um, certain people are given access, and then you review what's what's there. Um, and if there's a lot of agreements, you should have a team of young people, uh, associates and students, who are. And I give them a checklist. I say, here's the key issues that you're looking for when you're reviewing the agreement. So I've so I've got the checklist. I give them that to them. I go and these here's the hundred agreements that you guys got to review. You are going to do employment agreements. You're going to do independent contract agreements. You're going to do non-disclosure agreements. You're going to do everything else. Um, and here's the checklist. With AI, you you could feed all of those agreements. You, you feed my checklist first, I guess, and I've never done this, but this is, I know this is capable of, of we could, we're able to do this, I, this capability exists, um, and then the AI technology will review those hundred agreements, yeah. identify the problems. That's crazy. So do you think there's ever in the future a uh, concern that technology could take away the role of a lawyer in a business? I don't, because that, that, um, that's, that's commodity. Sort of reviewing yeah. due, um, agreements on a due diligence component of a merger and acquisition deal, right? Um, I don't think AI will replace law, but AI will do some of the bread and butter mm. that lawyers have. We all have bread and butter areas, but it's not. I mean, I don't make my money on bread and butter. I, I, I do a lot of advice, strategy thinking, right? Uh, planning, um, and and helping clients sort of figure that out, which I don't think AI will be able to do. But AI could certainly do the commodity bread and butter areas. Makes sense. What type of, out of curiosity, what type of technology doesn't exist that you would love to exist in order to make a lawyer's life easier? <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm sure it exists out there. Um, but I, but, and, and, and um, I, I've tried one or two and not been happy with it. So, but like, like for at least for my area of law, the IP technology, like due dates are critical. I have so many due dates. Um, and, um, like I, and I have to diarize everything, and I diarize everything that I need to do for each client. Um, so having a, a, a task system that I could, uh, that's easier to use than what I'm using now would be a phenomenal. As I say, I say, I say to, my, uh, to some of my friends, th- this task uh, component in Outlook, I, I don't know how to zoom. <laughs> I don't know how to zoom it. Like, it's so tiny print. As I'm getting older, I'm having a harder time I have to really get my nose to the screen like it's like, and I can't zoom this um so that would be the technology that I would love something that that's really uh easy to use because I'll remember I have a, I have a group of people that work with me um and like those tasks I will forward it to you Josh hey just following up on this when do you think I could get that draft agreement so something that's so, it's, so it has to be really user-friendly that I could also forward it to third you know third party <laughs> well, maybe there's an entrepreneur listening and they'll go and build this software for you and they'll reach out to you to protect it too. I, I suspect there may be something out there that I haven't seen that maybe someone will maybe will email and say, hey, by the way, did you check this out? <laughs> Love it. So Sylvia, as we kind of wrap up our, our conversation here, what do you think the, the future of intellectual property and technology law will, will look like as we move forward? Well, I think, um, I think uh, data... Um, will become more and more important uh, for businesses, uh, especially when they become more cognizant of it and, and, and how they could use it to their benefit uh, in a legal way. Uh, NFTs, we've talked about NFTs. Oh, so we haven't talked about NFTs. Um, um, but that, I think most, most of us have heard of NFTs just because of the crazy dollars that are being associated with these digital um, uh, intangible assets. Um, but 
that may be leading to um, a virtual world, mm-hmm. or the, other, the word that I put here is metaverse. It may be the beginning of that. I know we have virtual worlds, mm-hmm. but this, the NFTs and, and, and um, uh, the fact that it's becoming common knowledge, that uh, people are trying them out, they're either buying them or they're creating NFTs. There's um, websites that allow you to create NFTs. You could create an NFT of anything, which then be- makes it this digital asset, um, which then you maybe can move into a virtual world, and now you could find yourself in... That, I think, may be coming now, not within five years, but you may be seeing it within five to ten years. And so for me as an IP lawyer, technology lawyer, what does that mean for me as it relates to IP laws, which... We all know laws don't move very fast. They don't change very fast. They don't they don't get changed as fast as technology changes. So, what does that mean for me? So that's something that I'm sort of um, you know thinking about. Um, and then AI is another area um, as it relates to um, intellectual property. So, what if an AI uh, machine creates uh, an artistic work? Well, who owns that artistic work? So the, the issues that are and then uh, the issues associated with that. Um, and, and sort of the creations that AI will, will, will provide um, and so sort of the IP surrounding that. So, it's, I mean, it's, um, it's all fun. Yeah, I guess the only thing we really do know is that technology will continue to evolve <laughs> and who knows where it'll take us. But um, with whatever does happen, it'll be different needs to adapt and to change and to innovate. But, uh, Sylvia, this has been an amazing and insightful conversation. Really appreciate you sharing so much of your wisdom and, and knowledge on this topic. So I greatly appreciate it. Before we wrap up the conversation, I have usually a, a bit of a, a, at the end of every episode, I do a quick rapid fire question of a couple questions. So I'm going to throw a couple yes. questions at you and just first I'm thing that ready. comes to your mind. You ready? <laughs> All right. First one, what do you love most about your job? Flexibility, variety, and cutting edge creativity. Love it. Great answer. Uh, what do you love most about Winnipeg? People and just the people. I think we're very friendly. Name one other company or business person that inspires you and why. Your mom, Denise <laughs> Zapperzan. <laughs> Love it. She inspires me too. Favorite thing to do when not working? I do a lot of reading and I'm knitting now and I do math puzzles. Wow. Sudokus? No. It's, it's uh, a different variation of Sudokus. Okay. I'll have to share that with you if I... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned reading. Favorite book or book you would recommend to a business professional to read? Um, business professional. Um, I mean, I did like the Lean In book uh, that was written by the chief operating officer of Facebook. It, quick read, but very insightful thoughts in there. You might have answered this one already earlier, but if you were given $50,000 today to start a business, what would what business would you start? I actually might start, even though it's hard, um, a coffee shop. Oh, with some it. like some really great coffee. Not to say that we don't have great coffee in Winnipeg. I think we certainly do have some great coffee shops here. But I think that would be pretty fun. Uh, with be. yeah, that would be best piece of advice that you've ever received. The can do, uh, and just having a can do attitude. Love it. Last one. You can have a dinner party with any four people in the world, dead or alive. Who's on your invite list? Ooh, I think I would have Michelle Obama. Uh, Mother Teresa, Warren Buffett, and if he was alive, but he's not, unfortunately, Steve Jobs. Wow, that's a great table. 
Sylvia, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you and for providing your insights and all of your advice on intellectual property and technology law. Uh, it's such an intriguing and massive topic. Congratulations on all the tremendous work and accomplishments that you've achieved in your career. Uh, you're definitely an inspiration to a lot of, uh, of young professionals and, and other professionals in the city and the community. It's been a pleasure to have this opportunity to sit down with you and just thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Very fun. Awesome. Thank Thanks, you. Sylvia. I'd like to say a final thanks to Sylvia for joining us in this episode of the Young Associates Perspective and for sharing her expertise and insights on intellectual property and technology law. I hope everyone who listened was able to take value and learn from this episode. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to sharing the next episode of the Young Associates Perspective with you soon. Take care.